And uh, we're going to continue to focus on Jesus this, uh, this morning and uh, focusing on what he wants to do for us as a community by looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And as you turn there, my question for you this morning to help us start conceiving of what Jesus is doing in this passage is, is this. Uh, when you think about the church, whether it's grace or some other local congregation, what feelings arise in your heart? Uh, I'm guessing some of you probably feel anxious or afraid because you've been wounded by churches in the past, and thinking about congregations brings up those experiences, and it brings up the past wounds, and with it the hurts and the, and the anxiety that comes with it. Uh, maybe your experience has been of churches that were very closed, angry communities where you could never live up to anyone's standards. You were always wrong or about to be wrong. And then to top it off, maybe those standards weren't even biblical. They were man-made, and so you might feel anger or shame. Uh, some of you, when you think about the church, maybe don't feel much of anything, since it's not a community that's had a significant impact on you. I mean, it's nice to go to church sometimes. The people are nice. The community's fine. But since the church community seems so much like your school community or your work community or your football community, you know, I just don't have any feelings about church one way or the other. It all kind of feels the same. On the other hand, how many of us, when we think about the local church, feel a sense of joy? Thankfulness. How many of us feel a relief when we think about going to church on Sunday because we find it to be such a restful, life-giving community? How many of us think about church as a place where the emotional and spiritual and even the physical energies we've been pouring out during the week are restored? I hope some of you have that experience. I know not all of you do, but wherever you are on this spectrum, uh, I think you're going to be able to hear a good word from Jesus this morning. Uh, this morning, our text wants us to see that our God, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath, which as we'll talk about means that he's the one who delivers us rest and refreshment and welcome. It also means, as we'll see, that he's the one who protects us from people who, for a variety of reasons, some of them even well-intentioned, would try to strip away any of the good gifts that he gives to us in order to refresh us and bless us and give us life. And then, too, I think this text also addresses our culture as a congregation, and it calls us to both embrace and create, in Jesus' name, a culture that expresses Jesus' Sabbath lordship, so that when people are with us, they actually experience the goodness and the restoring presence of Jesus. Whereas the psalmist says, they can taste and see in us that the Lord is good. And having experience of that goodness of Jesus are filled with his joy and peace and thanks that this congregation exists in the world and then maybe we'll even want to join it by repenting and believing in Christ because they know that Jesus is here and they've experienced his presence. And you're probably thinking that's a lot to pack into 30 minutes. And you're right. Uh, I'm probably not going to get it all in. We have another sermon kind of on this uh, next Sunday as well. But let's get started. 
Uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Luke 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of a Sabbath. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for the things that it declares to us about who Jesus is in our life and in the life of your people. Father, we want to understand the Sabbath lordship of Christ so that we can live out of it and receive it and enjoy it more than we yet do. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning with minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and to respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So very clearly, the idea of Sabbath is at the heart of our text. Uh, This event takes place on a Sabbath. There are questions raised about what the disciples are doing on the Sabbath, more accusations really. And then in Jesus' response, he ends in verse 5 with the Son of Man, which is a, a common title Jesus uses to refer to himself in the Gospels. He says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's unpack the Sabbath a little bit. Many of you probably know that the Sabbath is the name for the day God set aside to worship him. Uh, In the Old Testament, up through Jesus' day, the Sabbath was on Saturday. And uh, just FYI, uh, our day of worship moved to Sunday because that's the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead on. Uh, Now, from there, I could just give you a dictionary definition of Sabbath, which is rest. Uh, And then we could go on to talk about uh, all the laws regulating what that day of rest looks like. And while we will talk about the laws kind of in a little bit, the reality is I don't know how to make that not be a boring sermon. Uh, And I honestly think it would ultimately be unhelpful to hearing Jesus' final statement well, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so let's do this instead. Uh, Sometimes God defines concepts by using stories in the Bible. For example, if I were to ask you what it meant for you to love your neighbor as yourself— My hope is most of you would think about Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, which is where Jesus defined the whole concept using a story. Jesus uses the same approach to define Sabbath throughout the Bible. And while there's several stories that he does this in, it seems to me that given Jesus' answer, he has at least three of those directly in mind. And the first is the creation story in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, the world before it's created, is described by God as formless and void. There's no community, there's no relationships, there's no beauty, there's no hospitality or enjoyment, there's no diversity of being. It's nothing. 
It's formless and void. And then what does God do? Well, he goes on to create form in the first three days. Light and darkness, sky and water, water and land. And then he fills those forms with an incredible and seemingly infinite diversity of life. Stars and planets and moons and birds and fish and octopi and trees and coral and buffalo and cattle and, of course, us. And then the seventh day, the Sabbath day arrives. And what does God do? He rests. Now, Genesis 1 is very clear that Jesus doesn't rest because he's just exhausted from all the hard work. No, he rests because creation is now very good. He's finished, and he is obviously delighted in it. When God rests on the Sabbath day, it's because he wants to bask in the goodness that he's made and enjoy the community of creation that he's created. But there's an additional element to the seventh day that I sometimes missed, which is that on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 1, there is no evening and morning mentioned at the end of that day. When God rests on the seventh day, it's an open-ended day. And I don't want to go too much off into the weeds here, but when the author of Hebrews reflects on that open-endedness, he says that, well, because in some profound way God's rest hasn't ended, that means that every single day holds the possibility of entering into the Sabbath rest of Jesus by being saved through faith in Christ. Every day is the day of salvation because every day... Jesus is at rest and opens it up for us to join him in it. Following that same reasoning, I think we can say this. For God, Sabbath involves the continual sustaining and pouring out of life to his creation. That is, God's rest is life-giving life-sustaining, which is different than us, right? For us, rest is where we receive life back. For God, rest is to give life out. So to summarize a little bit here, for Jesus, Sabbath means that he gives life to everything in creation, always, every day. And it means delighting and enjoying the beauty and diversity and the goodness and the blessedness of creation and of God's presence then within creation. Or to summarize it super tightly for you, Sabbath is defined in Genesis 1 as life, delight, and communion with God. Life, delight, and communion with God. That's where the concept is defined. Now let's go to the second story where we get the day itself defined. And that's in Exodus. Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath. God gives himself the name Lord in Exodus after he saves Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, in Exodus, that slavery is described as a living death. There's genocide when Pharaoh decrees a pogrom against all the firstborn Jewish males. The Jews are kept in a separate area, which is compared analogously to the animal pens that uh, Egyptians kept their cattle in, meaning that they were not thought of as fellow human beings, but as 
cattle, though of course they were treated worse than cattle because the Jews were subjected to impossible demands while being literally worked to death. None of that sounds like Sabbath. None of that sounds like life, delight, or communion with God. So when God saves the Jews out of the living death of slavery, and when he brings them into a covenant relationship with himself, one of the central laws he gives them is the law of the Sabbath. He commands them to rest. He gives them a day where everyone, cattle and land included, seriously, the land gets Sabbaths too, if you go and look at the Old Testament. They all get to physically rest, and they get to spiritually rest. Sabbath is a day when everyone, Jew and Gentile, immigrant, refugee, and vacationers, could have communion with God in worship. They could receive his life-giving word, his forgiveness, his friendship, and the friendship of the saints. Because they've been freed to be refreshed. God's people and those who are with them get to receive and enjoy all the blessings of creation, whether that's the blessings of his nature, the blessings of their family, the blessings of their friends, the blessings of food, water, or even just enjoying the stars in heaven without feeling like, oh man, I really got to go work on that report. No, it's a day of delight. The Sabbath is a day when they get to meet God, be blessed by him, and then enjoy all the blessings of life he's given to them. In other words, God creates the Sabbath day to protect the freedom of everyone to receive his goodness. And also to teach God's people how to express that goodness and that life-giving presence to everyone around them. So when Jesus says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, what he means is, I am the God who delights in the bountiful goodness of creation that I have made. I am the God who sustains it and then gives that goodness to you every single day. And I am also the God who restores people to that life of rest and life and delight in communion with me. But not just that. There's one more story that I think is particularly important to what's the interaction between the disciples and the Pharisees. And here it is in three sentences. They're kind of run on, but there's just three sentences. Uh, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's the first sentence. That comes from Ezekiel, where God accuses many of his people and most of their leaders of denying his Sabbath blessings to other people. That's sentence two. Here's the last one. As a result, God says the Messiah the Son of Man, will come and rescue his Sabbath blessings and restore them to his people by stopping the, uh, the abuse, by stopping those who are stopping those blessings from coming, and also by creating repentance within those who are hindering those blessings. And he will bring healing and rest and refreshment and life and delight to everyone involved. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, I think he also means, I am the one who will not let anyone steal the gift of my Sabbath rest from anyone, no matter how small a gift that may be. And now I think we're in a place where we can reflect on the disciples and the Pharisees in our story. So let's start with the disciples. Let's imagine them doing literally 
because they did, what Jesus commands us to do spiritually, which is follow behind him. And as they're following behind Jesus, Jesus walks through a field of grain. And as the disciples walk through it, a few of them, they get a little hungry. They're not starving. This is not life and death. They are very much just snacky, right? Now they're also Jews. They know and keep because Jesus says they did all the laws. And they know that the only grain available to them, if they're feeling snacky walking through a field, would be on the edges of the field, which God explicitly commanded to be left available for the poor, the widow, the sojourner, the animal, and the snacky. And the fact that they weren't called out for breaking that law shows that they kept it. I think that's important to know. The disciples also know the laws about not working on the Sabbath, including not harvesting grain. And while there were different ideas about uh, how to understand that particular command, what counted and didn't count as harvesting, no one, no one, including this group of Pharisees, as we'll talk about in a second, no one believed that God's law forbidded plucking a handful of grain and eating it as a snack. So disciples are going along, they're minding their own business, they're keeping the commandments. I'm sure they're happy for this snack they just ate. Uh, maybe they're even joyful. Right? Maybe they just came from worship, as probably they just did come from worship, and they have had their sense of all of this goodness that surrounds them, from the community of saints that they're in, to the grain and the sky and the heavens and the people they see milling about, and maybe the mouse in the field. Like All of that is God's good gift. Maybe that vision has been renewed. Maybe, and maybe through that theological vision, they're just extra refreshed that day. They're extra thankful. They've learned to see just again, just a little bit more clearly, the world through the lens of God's own eyes. And then out of the blue, this group comes up to them and they're angry. And they're saying, why are you sinning? And I imagine the disciples looking at each other the way that kids do when they've been accused of doing wrong, but they haven't done anything wrong, right? They look at each other all confused, and they look at them, are you talking about me? Me? What, what did I do? And just like with children, so with us adults, when you're falsely accused, there are a few things that can happen. You can get angry, and you can defend yourself. You can also be pushed into a belief, though, that you did in fact do something wrong when you didn't, and then you can feel inappropriate shame. Now, shame for doing something wrong isn't inherently bad. It's what you do with that shame that turns it into something harmful or helpful. But feeling shame and guilt for doing nothing wrong, that's always harmful. Not the least because it will keep you from enjoying the blessings of God in some way. It robs you it robs us of an important part of Jesus' Sabbath rest, which is his effusive, my cup can't keep it all in, goodness of God poured out into our lives. And then, of course, down the road, if and when you come to realize that you were made to feel bad for something that was, in fact, neutral or even just good, it can bring bitterness and resentment. That is, it breaks the Sabbath rest of community and relational peace and love because you were loaded down with burdens that you were never meant to carry. 
Now, I chose children as an example of this because, as I said here a long time ago, some of the disciples were older children. Some scholars guess John might have been around 10 or 11. Some scholars, and I tend to agree with them, think that he was probably around 7 or 8. I don't want to go into all the details of how we know that, but that's probably who was snacking, right? It probably wasn't Peter, James, and John, who were probably in their early 20s. It probably was the younger disciples. And then these adults come along, and they try to put all this guilt on them for doing something that was not a sin, that nobody thought was a sin. In fact, it was literally a good thing, right? They were receiving God's good gifts that he had by commandment left available for them so that when they were hungry or snacky, they could enjoy food. And now imagine Jesus walking up, and I, I always imagine in my head in this interaction, he stands between them and the Pharisees. And he says in verse 3, I'm going to read this again. Have you not read what David did? When he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now, you don't need to know the details of that particular story to get Jesus' main point here, because Jesus states that main point very clearly. Jesus' point is, if God, if I, was willing to bless David and his men even when they did something unlawful, something that actually broke my ceremonial law, why would I keep blessings from my people when they're keeping my law? And as we hear Jesus' response to the disciples' predicament, I hope we can see Jesus, Son of Man, Lordship at work here. Jesus is defending his disciples' Sabbath rest. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to stand idly by while someone tries to take my Sabbath blessings from my people, no matter how small those blessings are, even if they're just a handful of grain that fit in the palm of a 10-year-old's hand. See, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, Jesus is not going to tolerate a community culture that piles inappropriate guilt and shame on people. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the God who gives and sustains Sabbath life, Sabbath delight, Sabbath communion with God. I am the God who saves people into that rest and who defends it. If your experience of the church hasn't been that restful, because it's been saying no to Jesus' Sabbath blessings in some way, Jesus wants you to understand that his role, his current role, is to deliver you from those experiences. His goal in salvation is to give you Sabbath rest, the rest of forgiveness, of welcome, of joy, of freedom, of holiness and refreshment. His goal is to be the Lord of the Sabbath today for the people of God. And my prayer for you, and I think it's our prayer as a church too, I hope it's our prayer as a whole congregation, is that even this morning you would be experiencing some of that rest that Jesus is giving you even now in worship. And while it's important that you get that rest from Jesus, it's also important that you get it from Jesus' people 
And here we come to the Pharisees. And I am not going to be able to say here everything that I wanted to say because that would involve jumping in the next week's passage and preaching at least another sermon. And I'm already trying your patience enough this morning. So I'm going to say a couple things here. We're going to kind of pick this theme up again next Sunday. So I'm going to make this fast. The the Pharisees were not a monolithic group. The Pharisees was a name that was given to a large number of theological identities within the people of God in Jesus' day. Kind of like how Reformed is a name given to a large number of theological identities within the people of God, right? All Reformed Christians share some things in common with each other. But there are a lot of differences. There are so many differences that we don't even like each other all the time. We say mean things about each other online. I really hope Jesus forgives us for this. Like, it's the same way in Jesus' day with the Pharisees. So here Luke is very careful to say in verse 2, some of the Pharisees approach the disciples. And the fact that they accuse the disciples of breaking something that was not a law and that nobody thought was a law, tells us what type of Pharisees they were. They were the kind that intentionally built what they called fences around God's law. And here's what what I mean by that, and here's what they meant by that. Uh, This approach to the life of faith reasoned that because sin is bad and deserves death and hell, and that's all true, we want to avoid that as much as possible. So we're going to build fences around the commandments. We're going to extend out from the commandment and make it so that you can't even get near the commandment to break it. And that will protect us from sin and ensure our blessings. And while I want to talk about this more next week, can I just say that the desire to put fences around the commandments might seem like a form of godliness, but really all it is 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 protecting your own heart from having to deal with things like repentance and reconciliation and wounding. So if the commandment says, don't do work of harvest on the Sabbath, and you have to harvest by rubbing grain together, we're going to make a fence that says anyone, anyone who takes the grain and rubs it between their hands, you can't do that. That's going to, be, that's going to get you too close to violating the law. We're going to put that fence up. We're going to put up a fence that forbids children from getting a snack from the field on the Sabbath day because we're so afraid that God will not forgive uh, any kind of labor or be good or merciful to us. And can I just say that Jesus' example of David getting God's blessing even when he broke an actual commandment, like literally broke it, is probably the strongest poke in the theological eye you can imagine for people who want to build fences around God's law. Now, the reason why God blesses that, and again, we're going to talk about this more next Sunday, is uh, because David's life was actually in danger of starvation. But the whole idea of going up to people who have made fences and said, this is now our standard for righteousness, and then Jesus saying, didn't you hear about the time when David broke the standard of righteousness and everything was okay because God loves him? (laughs) Like, that's about as much of a poke in the eye as you can possibly get. And I think this is good for us to see If you have spent any time in the evangelical and reformed world, you've probably experienced some kind of fence. We all want to make fences in some way. You can think about fences uh, around uh, 
alcohol to protect from the sin of drunkenness, fences around male and female friendships to protect against the sin of lust. Uh, most ironic for me, fences around Sabbath keeping to make sure that we keep the day holy, right? We're going to make fences that say you cannot enjoy any kind of multimedia experience. I've been in churches like this. You can't watch football games. You can't play video games. You can't watch TV because we need to rest. And so what that means is that my wife's going to go in the kitchen while I take a nap and she's going to cook a meal for 32 people that we invited over for Sunday. And this is a day of we've kept the law. We've all rested. And anyone who didn't, you're a sinner. A little exaggeration there, but some of you have experienced that kind of fence. When we do that, we are acting like the Pharisees and we are literally putting ourselves between someone and the delight and the joy and the goodness that Jesus wants to give and is giving to them. And we are creating a culture that Jesus tells us explicitly here he has to oppose because it is opposed to his mission of giving us life, delight, and communion with God in the fullest way possible. Like I said, I'm going to expand that point on uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. But for this morning, my prayer would be that we would see here that Jesus is the one who gives and guards Sabbath rest. And I also pray that we would not only be a church that joins Jesus in saying no to everything that he says no to explicitly in the Bible, but that we would also be a church that says yes to everything that Jesus says yes to to every good and perfect gift that he gives to anybody. Because every good and perfect gift to everybody comes down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And I pray finally that we would help each other and those with us to receive every good and perfect gift that comes from God, not with guilt, but with gratitude and joy and delight and that we together would rejoice in the way that Jesus uses even the smallest of gifts like some grains of wheat to restore our souls and make us happy. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you give us rest by giving us life and delight and communion with you. Thank you for saving us into that rest and for defending that rest. Father, please give us more of this rest. Please give us more life, deeper delight, greater communion with you through faith in Christ. And please let us be a church that says yes to the things that you say yes to, a community uh, where people can experience the gift of your Sabbath lordship in real, tangible, life-restoring ways. Let us be a church that rejoices in the rest that you give so that when people are with us, they can taste and see that you are good, and uh, they can love you and walk with you. And we ask all of this for the sake of and the honoring of Jesus' name, which he has put on all of his people through baptism. Amen.